Well, great. I'd like to welcome everybody um, this afternoon. My name's Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I teach in the International Relations Department. Uh, I'm the director of the new uh, U.S. Center um, at the LSE, which, along with the Department of International Relations, is um, hosting today's talk. Everybody knows the IR department, um, but for those of you who do not know about the U.S. Center, uh, our mission is to promote scholarly analysis and critical debate uh, about the United States, and it's really hard to think of anyone uh, who better exemplifies the kind of publicly engaged scholarship uh, the Center seeks to promote than today's speaker, uh, Professor Joseph Nye. Joe has taught for many years uh, at Harvard University, where he's the University Distinguished uh, Service Professor, uh, formerly the Dean of the uh, Kennedy School of Government there, um, trained at Princeton, Oxford, Harvard. He's served in Washington as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. He chaired for a number of years uh, the National Intelligence Council, uh, and was Deputy Undersecretary of State for Security uh, Assistance, um, Science, uh, and Technology. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Diplomacy. He has published very widely over the years, uh, over the course of his career, and is especially well known for his writings about American foreign policy and the role of power in world politics. And most of us know him for his scholarship um, and writing, uh, but there are many international relations scholars who know Joe in a different capacity, um, as someone who has always taken the time to help nurture and promote younger scholars. As a young assistant professor working to finish up a book and beat the tenure clock, Joe made it possible for me many moons ago, uh, to spend a year at, at Harvard to get it done. There are many of us in the profession who can tell the same basic story, and it helps explain why Joe is so beloved in the field of international relations. All right, enough praise. We're not here to praise Joe. We're not here to bury you, Joe. Let's get down to business. He's here to talk about the issue of American power, um, and his newest book, uh, Hot Off the Press, is the American Century Over. For those of you on Twitter, the suggested hashtag for today is hashtag LSE Nye. I'd ask all of you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Um, we're being uh, recorded here and... Uh, I have this, like, threat here. It says, and it will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties, uh, meaning uh, phone calls. Uh, as usual, after the lecture, there's going to be time for um, uh, questions, a chance for you to put your questions to, uh, to Joe Nye. There will also be a short book signing uh, taking place following the event on stage with copies of the book on sale. Uh, outside after the venue. We're going to be moving very, very quickly because Joe's got a second event over at Chatham House at 6, so we're going to you know, bring this one to... We're going to try to come in a little bit before 5.15, and then he'll do the 
you know, book signing for folks, and then we're going to put them in a taxi and send uh, send them over to uh, to Chatham House. And with that, please join me in giving uh, Professor Nye and his wife Molly, who is here uh, as well today, uh, one of those grand LSE welcomes. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be back at LSE, and uh, I appreciate that generous uh, introduction, and I can proudly say it was a very good book. <laughs> a good investment. <laughs> yours, I'm talking about, not mine. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm here to talk about mine, not yours. But uh, I, I want to address this question of uh, what do we mean when we talk about an American century, and is it over? The whole idea of thinking of a century associated with a country is a little bit arbitrary. Not a little bit, a lot arbitrary. The term, the American century, was coined by the editor of Time magazine, Henry Luce, in 1941. And you might say he was describing the world. In fact, he wasn't. He was developing a term to exhort the United States to change its policy and to join in World War II by helping Britain resist Hitler. And he failed. And uh, similarly, Franklin Roosevelt, who, with whom Luce had very little in common, Roosevelt was, of course, a Democrat. Luce was a staunch Republican. Roosevelt also tried to persuade the American people to become involved in helping Britain to defeat Hitler. And he failed, too. Uh, he was one of our best rhetoricians as a president. And he would try to speak to the American people and say we had to get involved, and he couldn't do it. And at one stage, he turns to his speechwriter and says, Sam, what do you do if you're the leader of a democracy and you look over your shoulder and no one is following? And basically, that was the situation in the United States. If you think of when do you start something you might call the American century, you could say it starts around 1900 when the United States becomes the largest economy in the world. But uh, then you could also start it in 1918, when the, after World War I, where the U.S. had tipped the balance, uh, you could say the United States comes out strengthened, everybody else weakened. The United States might be seen as the strongest country after 1918. But what's it do for the next 20 years? It turns inward. And by the 1930s, you have this extreme isolationism, so that even when a leader like Roosevelt or an editor like Luce see the rising threat of Hitler, you can't get the American people to live up to, uh, to the role that they should be playing. Indeed, there is a, uh, a story that uh, economists tell that collective goods, such as providing international stability, uh, if they're not produced by the largest country, they're not going to be produced. The temptations for smaller countries to free ride because you're not going to see the benefit of the efforts you make. So only the largest are going to consume enough of the collective good that it's worth their investing. And in that sense, the United States should, in the views of Roosevelt and Luce and others, have taken the lead after 1918 but instead, the Senate rejected the Treaty of Versailles. The United States didn't join the League of Nations. The Americans didn't help in terms of resistance to Hitler. 
And in that sense, the Americans were free riders when they should have been leading. So the view of the American century that was in the minds of, mind of Luce was an exhortation to the American people of, you know, now we've got World War II coming. It's a serious threat. We have to live up to this. He couldn't do it. The only thing that really did it was the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. Luce couldn't write an editorial strong enough to get the Americans involved in the war. Roosevelt couldn't persuade them. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was so open and blatant that the Americans responded. Then Hitler did uh, Roosevelt a huge favor by declaring war on the United States in solidarity with his Japanese ally. And the net effect of that, of course, is that the United States could focus on Europe, not just on Asia, when it came to fighting in World War II. So the American century really starts, in the way I describe it, not with the exhortation of Henry Luce, but with the policies that were followed after the war. Uh, instead of bringing troops home after World War II, uh, as we did after World War I, uh, basically, Harry Truman responds by saying when Britain can no longer defend Greece and Turkey and the eastern Mediterranean, we will step in. That's followed by the Marshall Plan to help the recovery of Europe, followed by NATO in 49. And essentially, American troops, instead of coming home, have been in Europe and Japan ever after to this day. So that centrality of the United States to the global balance of power is what I mean when I talk about the American century. Now, the question I think that's interesting to speculate about is, will it last? And how long will it last? Well, you know, there's an old saying in social science, never combine a number and a date in the same sentence, because then you can be proven wrong. But uh, I'm going to do something risky, and I'm going to say, let's take 100 years after 1941 and ask, by 2041, will the United States still be central to the global balance of power, which is what I mean by whether the American century will still be there. Now, there are a lot of people who say no. There are a lot of people that say uh, uh, we're beginning to see the end of the American century, and it'll certainly be over by then. Uh, if you look at, uh, at the Financial Times a year ago, they had a headline saying China was now the world's largest economy. Uh, and there are others who say that the 21st century is the Chinese century. And uh, still others who say the United States is in decline. Indeed, there was a public opinion poll that was taken in the United States in I think it was uh, 2009 or 10 or so, in which it showed that half of the American people believed that China had already or would soon pass the United States. And so that would suggest evidence that my bet on 2041 is likely to be a losing bet. But before we conclude that, let's look at some other ways of thinking about it. For one thing, let's look at this question of whether the United States is in decline and what to make of these polls. Is this a tremendous loss of American self-confidence, which means that it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, not necessarily. The Americans have been worried about decline right from the beginning. 
when the uh, Puritans who founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony left England because they felt that the Church of England wasn't pure enough in the way it worshipped God. They went to the New World, and then they kept worrying, but are we up to the standards we've set? Once you set that kind of a standard, you're always worried about whether you're up to it. And similarly, the founding fathers, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and others, had a, uh, a concern about decline right at the beginning. They were worried about decline of Republican virtues. They looked at Rome, but not the decline of the Roman Empire. They looked at the decline of the Roman Republic. Because for them, the great venture was to create a new form of government, Republican government, as opposed to monarchy, which was the typical government of the day. And they kept worrying that they weren't living up to it or might not live up to it. And in the period that I've called the American century, a period after 46 or so, uh, you can make an argument that uh, we've gone through cycles of declinism. Uh, for example, when the Soviet Union put up Sputnik in uh, uh, 1957, uh, there was a widespread view that the Soviets were now 10 feet tall. This was the wave of the future. Uh, when the Japanese manufacturing model was superior to the American Rust Belt in the mid-1980s, uh, that led to books by colleagues of mine titled Japan is Number One, uh, the view that now the Japanese were 10 feet tall. And after the period of the Great Recession, uh, when China had 10% growth following its massive stimulus package, and the United States was in negative growth, you got results like the poll I cited earlier. What I would suggest to you is that polls like this tell you something about the psychology of Americans. Americans are a strange breed, but it doesn't tell you much about power in the world. So if we're going to think more clearly about it, don't pay attention to polls. Pay attention to what are the power realities. If we're going to try to make some sense of the power realities, then we want to distinguish between absolute decline and relative decline. People often confuse these terms and wrap them together. Absolute decline is what happened to ancient Rome. Rome didn't succumb to the rise of another empire. It succumbed to internecine warfare and an economy which had no internal productivity. If you want to get rich, you captured a province from somebody else, but you didn't have a technological model which led to autonomous or internal economic growth. And in that sense, Rome failed to defend itself not against another empire, but against hordes of barbarians. And it was because of this internal absolute decline that Rome essentially fell. But again, going back to my first warning about the arbitrariness of centuries, note something else, that it took about three centuries to go from the peak of Roman power to the final decline of the western half of the Roman Empire. So, you know, centuries, there's nothing absolute about centuries. But in any case, the, the argument that Rome was an example of absolute decline is, is I think, a pretty good argument. A number of people are saying that that's the case of the United States, that if you look at uh, 
American gridlock politically, if you look at uh, the problems of inequality, if you look at some of the problems of the secondary school and primary school system, this is the sign of, of Rome. Uh, many people like to write clever-sounding op-eds uh, saying America is, is the new Rome, not in its rise, but in its decline. Um, the trouble is that the facts don't fit that analogy very well. If you look at the condition of the United States, the United States has lots of problems. It always has had. But um, if you look at some of the underlying trends, they're actually rather favorable. Start with demography. If you look at the ranking of countries in the world today by population, it's China, India, U.S. U.N. demographers projecting out to 2050 say it'll be India, China, U.S. What's remarkable about that is not the reversal of China and India, but the fact that the U.S. maintains its position. It's the only rich, large, rich country which will likely maintain its demographic position. And that is important because it means that the population will have a structure in which instead of a situation that you find in Europe or in Russia or in Japan, where you have fewer and fewer people of working age supporting more and more people older and dependent, uh, you're going to have a more balanced population structure in the United States economy. And that is, is a source of considerable strength. And I think part of it comes from the fact that the United States is a country of immigration and long has been. And I think it means that we're able to cope with these demographic changes better than many of our other rich country uh, comparisons. In addition to demography, uh, let's look at technology. Sometimes people say that the most important technologies of the uh, 21st century are going to be biotechnology, nanotechnology, and the next wave of information technology. And if you ask what country is at the forefront of all three of those technologies, it's the United States. And if you ask what lies below this or behind it, uh, you can look at the information structure uh, that goes on in relation to universities. So in terms of research and development and the generation of ideas, uh, if you look at the rankings of world universities made by Shanghai Jiao Tung University, uh, of the top 20 universities, uh, they rank 15 of the top 20 are American. None are Chinese. And then finally, to think of another favorable trend, uh, look at energy. If you'd looked at energy and the role of energy in the United States 10 years ago, we you have said the United States is becoming hopelessly dependent on imported energy, and that's weakening it, it considerably. But if you look at the situation today, the International Energy Agency projects that in the 2020s, North America may not be importing energy at all. And that's the result of the so-called shale revolution, the application of the technologies of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling uh, to shale rock, which has unleashed enormous amounts of oil and gas, which were there all the time. What was new was the technology 
and the entrepreneurship and the capital markets and the property structures and so forth, which led this to be exploited. So this is not a picture analogous to ancient Rome with no internal productivity and internecine warfare. So absolute decline strikes me as, as a misnomer. Relative decline is a little bit different. Relative decline can either be called relative decline, meaning that the American share of the total economy, world economy, is somewhat less than it was. It could also be called the rise of the rest. So if you think back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the United States, as I said, was the world's largest economy, and it had about a quarter of the world economy. After 1945, after World War II uh, basically devastates most areas of the world but strengthens the United States, the Americans are somewhere between a third to a half of the world economy, depending on how you measure it. And then gradually, after 1945, uh, as a policy issue, it, it, the others rise, and the American share of world product returns to about a quarter of the world economy, and it ends the century at about 23% uh, about where it began. Uh, so in that sense, it, the question of how do you portray this as relative decline or the rise of the rest has some impact on what you make of it. For example, Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, uh, two of the more perspicacious statesmen we've had in terms of understanding international affairs, read this decline, relative decline, from 1945 with half of the world economy to 1970, back to a quarter of the world economy. They said, look at that decline. The United States is in decline. The world is multipolar. And that was indeed the premise of their policy. The only problem with that, of course, is the 20th century ended not with a multipolar world, but with a unipolar world. What Kissinger and Nixon did was take a straight line from 45 to 70 and just extrapolate it on the same slope into the future. Whereas, in fact, that wasn't the right way to think about it. It returned to normal to what had been the average before. And that means that how you see relative decline matters. If you see it and mistake it as though it's absolute decline, you're going to have one set of policies. If you see it as the rise of the rest and that the policy of helping others rise is a wise and desired policy, then you see it somewhat differently. The International Monetary Fund projects that the United States will probably have its share of world product uh, in the range of 17 or 18 percent in the 2020s. Uh, so that's a relative decline. But it also can be seen as the rise of China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, and others. And that may not be such a bad thing, except for one point which is as others rise and the American share decline somewhat, will the largest country continue to be a leader in producing global collective goods? Or will there be a tendency to free ride? That raises the question of will we suffer from what's called entropy, the inability to get work done. 
that's a very different picture that most people have of what it means to see relative decline than, uh, than we usually are told. Usually the picture we're told when we look at relative decline is the rise of China and the threat from China. Uh, and this is the view that as China rises, it will be at the expense of the United States and that the United States will succumb to the type of fears that tore Europe apart in a century ago in World War I. The argument here, of course, goes all the way back to Thucydides and his explanation of the Peloponnesian War as being caused by the rise in the power of Athens and the fear that created in Sparta. Uh, and the argument is sometimes made that World War I, in which the European state system tore itself apart, was caused by the rise in the power of Germany and the fear it created in Britain. A rather oversimplified view of World War I, but nonetheless one that's often repeated. In any case, there are some who say that will be the story of the 21st century. Uh, my friend John Mearsheimer, a distinguished political scientist, who said China cannot rise peacefully. So in that sense, if China does rise rapidly, then we're in for a pretty rocky 21st century, or at least the first half of it. So that my 2041 projection may be one which is uh, bad for everybody, or at least chaotic. But in any case, let's look more carefully about whether there is a rise of China which is replacing the United States or which is a threat to replace the United States. And I'll start with the economics because that's the one that most people pay attention to. Remember, I referred you earlier to a headline in the Financial Times that said that China was already the world's largest economy. Be careful when you see numbers like this. Uh, for one thing, the Financial Times headline was repeating a study from the World Bank, the IMF, which was based not on exchange rates, but on purchasing power parity. Purchasing power parity is an adjustment that economists make to adjust for welfare differences between countries. But when you're importing oil or jet engines, you pay in exchange rates, not in purchasing power parity. And in exchange rates, the American economy is still considerably larger than the Chinese. But the question that's raised is, all right, suppose we use exchange rates. Won't China at some time be larger than the United States? After all, if you have 1.3 billion people and a high growth rate and another country with 350 million people and a growth rate around 2.5 or 3 percent, eventually those lines will cross. And there's a guessing game about when those lines will cross. When the Americans were suffering in the aftermath of the Great Recession, I think the economist had a guess that it would happen as early as 2019. Now most people put it closer to 2030. But uh, notice something again about the danger of drawing trend lines and extrapolating straight lines. One of the questions is what will happen to China's growth rate? From 10% to 7%, which Li Keqiang calls the new normal, is the decline we've seen so far. My colleague Larry Summers and Lant Pritchett have done a study based on a, an analysis of other countries which have had double-digit growth in the past. Remember, Japan once had 10% growth. And they've said, what would you expect to be 
a normal rate of growth after you have a regression to the mean or return to average. They say Chinese growth in that projection would look like 3.9%. Well, anyway, whichever number you plug in and multiply it times 1.3 billion people will tell you something about the date where you expect these lines to intersect. Um, some economists, for example, Charles Wolf of the Rand Corporation, say it won't happen until 2040. But uh, let's suppose that, just to pick a number out of the air, let's suppose it does happen in 2030 that China becomes larger than the U.S. in aggregate size of its GDP. Does this mean that China is economic more, more powerful than the U.S.? Not necessarily. Total size of an economy is one measure of economic power. In my book on the future of power, I try to go into this in some detail. But uh, there's another way of looking at economic power, which relates to the sophistication of an economy. And sophistication of economy is better judged by per capita income. And in per capita income, the United States is four times ahead of China today. And even if you imagine China passing the U.S. in total GDP in 2030, it'll be decades after that before it equals or passes the United States in per capita income. Now, what is this sophistication of an economy I'm talking about? Let me give you an example from trade. In 2012, I believe it was, China passed Germany as the world's largest trading nation. That is a source of economic power for China. It's important. But you have to look beyond the headline figures to ask, what's the context and content of that trade? It's interesting if you look at, uh, at something like this iPhone. This is an import from China. $750 it'll cost you in the U.S. But if you ask how much of the value added is actually Chinese, it's about 5%. The components come from other countries, the intellectual property from the U.S., uh, the marketing and so forth is uh, U.S. So it looks like a big Chinese export. In fact, the Chinese value added is relatively small, or as the Chinese sometimes put it, they're better at producing jobs than at producing Steve Jobs. Now, this is beginning to change, and you would expect it to continue to change. But the point is that when you're measuring strength of an economy and economic power, you want to make sure you look at sophistication of the economy as well as aggregate size. So on economic power, I don't think the Chinese are ahead of the United States the way Germany was ahead of Britain in 1914. As for military power, uh, you'll see that the, there's a similar gap in the sense that uh, uh, there are various ways of measuring military budgets. A Chinese budget has been going up by 10% a year. Military budget's been going up by 10% a year for over a decade. But on most estimates, uh, it's, the U.S. is still something in the range of four times more than China. Uh, and that doesn't take into account the capital goods that are invested. Uh, some people have estimated that there's a 10 to 1 ratio if you take accumulated capital goods. So the idea that China will be militarily more powerful than the United States in 2041, I think probably not. They'll have an extraordinary capability and particularly in their region and in the oceans near China, 
But that means that China will be better placed to defend the oil it's importing from the Middle East that comes through the Straits of Malacca than through the Straits of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. That'll still probably be the Americans. So in overall military power, as to projecting power on a global basis, I suspect the Americans will still remain more powerful. As for the third component of power, soft power, the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, the Chinese have invested a great deal in soft power, and that's a smart strategy for them, because if your hard power, economic and military, is increasing mightily, you're likely to create or incentives for your neighbors to form coalitions to protect themselves against you. But if you combine soft power and attractiveness with your hard power, those coalitions are less likely to be effective. So China's efforts to increase its soft power make good sense. But if you look at polls taken by the BBC or by the Pew Charitable Trust and others, they haven't been doing all that well. They do pretty well in Africa, somewhat in Latin America. They don't do too well in Europe, North America, or in Asia. Why is that? Well, on Europe and North America, a lot of it has to do with the tight party control of civil society. There is a real, not a realization that a lot of American soft power comes from civil society, not from government, from everything from universities to Hollywood, uh, rather than from government propaganda. Uh, and if you look at Asia, you find that China has a lot of territorial conflicts with its neighbors. And as it tries to advance these territorial conflicts, and we've seen a lot of this in the newspapers in the last week about the South China Sea, uh, it creates a sense of, of nationalism and a resistance. So it doesn't do you much good to create a Confucius Institute to make Chinese culture more attractive in Manila if Chinese naval ships are chasing Philippine fishing boats out of Scarborough Reef, which the Philippines believe is on their extended economic zone. So I would argue that in all three of those dimensions of power, military, economic, and soft power, I don't see China passing the United States by 2041. Now, to summarize this, why does it matter? Who cares? Who cares? You know, it's not bragging rights of what's, who's number one. Well, the reason we should care, there are two reasons we should care of getting power assessments right. One is this point that I mentioned about fear, that if you believe that China is about to pass the U.S. and that the U.S., has to respond aggressively, and you are in a World War I or pre-World War I type situation, uh, that's worrisome. But if you believe that China is not like Germany, it is not caught up with Britain, China is not caught up with the U.S. as Germany had caught up with Britain, uh, then there's more time to manage the relationship. The United States doesn't have to succumb to fear. Will there be difficulties and conflicts and areas of competition? Of course. But it doesn't have to lead to a great conflagration. And the other reason that it's important to get the assessment of power right is there are a number of areas where we and China and Europe and others are going to have to cooperate if we're going to deal with them. Climate change can't be solved by any one country alone. 
take pandemics. Remember, in 1918, more people died in the influenza epidemic than died in the Great War itself. Uh, and look at issues like terrorism. Look at issues like cybercrime. There are a number of issues which are not susceptible to any one government handling it all by themselves, which are going to require cooperation. If the U.S. and China are at loggerheads on everything, like the Soviet Union and the U.S. were in, world, in, in the Cold War period, uh, then that's also going to be a considerable loss. So I think the fact that China is not about to pass the U.S. is good news, not because of national pride, because it means there's less prospect of a World War I-like situation, and because it leads to better chance that you may be able to organize cooperation on some of these areas where there are common interests. But in any case, whether I'm right or not, uh, probably it might help to end with a quote from Lee Kuan Yew, who I've always uh, found, it, uh, or always did find, an astute observer of uh, U.S. and China relations. And I once asked him, uh, did he think that China was going to pass the U.S. in the next quarter century? He said, no. He said, they're going to give you a good run for your money, but I don't think they're going to pass you. And I said, why? He said, well, think of it this way. China can draw on the talents of 1.3 billion people, but the United States can draw on the talents of 7 billion people. And what's more, it can recombine them in a diversity that's much more creative than you'll ever get under ethnic Han nationalism, this by an ethnic Han. I think that's probably right. But in any case, stick around, because in 2041, you can check and see whether I got it right or not. <laughs> so thank you very much. Great, Joe. Thanks for, for your, uh, your lecture. We're going to open it up to uh, questions um, in a second, and we've got stewards roving around with microphones. When you get the microphone, um, you know, please uh, give your name and, and affiliation and, and make the question fairly uh, brief. Uh, I'm going to exercise the chair's prerogative, though, to ask the first question. Um, so my question's about that strange breed, the Americans. Um, you know, a lot of people, my sense is a lot of people over here on this side of the pond worry less about American, the decline in American power per se than they do American indifference. Um, they see the Tea Party, they see Occupy Wall Street, they see the Gallup polls, which show, you know, that over half of the American public wants um, its elected leaders to focus more on the home front than internationally. That's a very high number by historic standards um, in the U.S. And um, so what they worry about, my sense is over here, is retrenchment, that the United States is really retrenching. That's what Obama really is about. Um, and I, I guess my question is, what should we make of this? I mean, is it cyclical um, and likely to pass, or is this really like the new normal uh, in the United States? Well, it's, uh, it's the question 
du jour or of the electoral cycle at home, uh, uh, since it's going to be hotly debated in 2016. Uh, I think it's cyclical. Uh, I don't think we're going to go through a deep uh, turn of the cycle like we did in the 1930s, where we'll be uh, truly indifferent to a major threat. Uh, there is a cycle, though, between what Steve Sistanovich, a Columbia University political scientist, calls maximalism and retrenchment. And when you have periods of maximalism, as Vietnam was maximalism, then you get a period like we saw in the 70s, which is a retrenchment. Uh, when you, and, or we could argue that the invasion of Iraq was a period of maximalism. Mm -hmm. and that what we're seeing now is a period of retrenchment. I suspect that this, this cycle is probably turned, but uh, you're the expert on American foreign mm -hmm. policy, so you should answer yeah. it. <laughs> I will take other questions now. Um, so we've got a hand right down here on the left, and then we'll take the one back there. Danny, I see you. We're getting students in here first. Um, so I tell you what, what I'd like to do is, because time is short, we'll cluster. Let's take this first question, and then the question, you want to put your hand back up? Uh, so we'll take these first two questions, and then we'll do another round. Well, thank you, Professor Nye, for um, the very inspiring talk. Um, so my question is, you mentioned about you know, uh, the American century is identified by the centric role of the United States in the world order. So my question is, um, how would you see um, such kind of order in the global governance are going to be um, like in the next, uh, in the coming few decades, particularly considering the institutional power of the United States in critical um, organizations such as the World Bank, the IMF. Um, and one of the recent trend is the China's investment into, um, you know, international organizations such as Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the BRICS Corporation. So uh, my question is, how would you see um, this as a challenge? Thank you. Okay. Let's take the question back there. Uh, thank you for the talk, Professor Nye. Um, on the topic of both retrenchment uh, and of uh, only the largest power being able to provide collective goods such as stability, is it naive to think that a reformed UN... Uh, and collective diplomacy through that institution with a substantial military force could be used to provide that those collective goods and that collective stability without the largest power like the U.S. Uh, having to operate outside it? Good questions. Um, I think, on, just, uh, let me do them in reverse order. I think the chance, I think the U.N. is extremely important. It's the only uh, uh, global organization which is inclusive and in which just about everybody's in it, the political organization, um, I can't see it being strong enough to be able to provide those collective goods. It, if the Security Council, the powers on the Security Council don't own, agree, it's very hard for the UN to do anything. And if you ask, uh, could that change someday? Possibly. But the time since when collective security has been exercised, 1950, and 1990-91 were both times when uh, you had a rare occasion where all the, the permanent members of the Security Council agreed. And if you can imagine a situation where that's frequent, then the UN may be able to do it. I suspect that if we look at the trends we're seeing in Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China and the United States, it's not a high probability. 
On the question of uh, collective goods and institutions, and, and particularly more on the economic side, um, the interesting question is, will China be like the United States, try to be a free rider or not? Um, I think the Chinese actually have made some progress in this, and I think the United States should have welcomed the AIIB rather than opposed it. If China wants to uh, use some of its reserves to create infrastructure in other countries, that's, that is a public good. And uh, if it does it in a way which is not a corrupt slush fund but has an institutional framework which has transparency, uh, that's a good thing. And I noticed that uh, um, President Obama has reversed the American position on this. So I think we should be encouraging China to do more of this, not to worry so much about it. Very good. Um, so we have one hand right there, and we'll take the hand over here, Kelly. So we'll take these two questions and the third one back there. Can we get the third one? Thanks. Uh, we'll come around. Danny, I haven't forgotten you. Hi. Um, I have a question that relates, I guess, a little bit to the absolute decline and a maybe imperial type of overstretch uh, argument by saying that mm, it's not other powers that outgrow the U.S., but it's the types of challenges that the world poses that threatens U.S. ability to provide the collective goods. So you have additional challenges, terrorism, obviously climate change, and all these things. And it's not as much the U.S. declining, but the U.S. being in, uh, unable to answer all these threats or all these challenges at the same time. Kelly? Um, uh, my question is about normativity. Um, it, it could be said that since the unipolarity of the United States uh, became a huge factor, um, that there has been certain norms pushed in the international sphere. And if, as you say, we will experience a rise of the rest, do you think that the um, normativity of international politics will change? How do you expect that could change? Will we see changes in the um, type of human rights that are pushed or changes in the type of uh, governance that is pushed? We'll take those, and then I'll come to Danny after. Okay, um, I think the issue of type of uh, problem that we face is very important. Uh, many of these transnational issues, uh, such as climate change or pandemics or cyber terrorism or what have you, uh, are not, uh, if we take the concepts of unipolarity or multipolarity, these issues can't be described in those terms. The only way in which you can actually get action that's effective on these transnational issues is by cooperation. And it's still true that if the largest doesn't help initiate the cooperation, uh, it won't occur. But it's not going to be able to do it itself. I, I once uh, uh, put a title on a book called The Paradox of American Power, and the subtitle is Why the World's Only Superpower Can't Do It Alone. And so in that, if that's correct, then the attitudes that Americans have, whether they understand the nature of these issues and are willing to take the lead and, 
and sort of pay their dues, so to speak, is, is going to be very important. That worries me more than the power resources, per se. Um, and on the issue of, of norms and polarity, it's, it's a very interesting mental exercise. My co- former colleague Sam Huntington used to do this. He said, imagine that Germany or Japan had won World War II. Imagine the Americans had stayed out and Germany or Stalin's Russia had won World War II. What would the world look like? It would look very different. The norms that would have been, it's not that the Americans are always great at democracy or human rights. We often violated democracy and human rights in other countries. But if you take a country like South Korea, which was an autocracy and, which, and a dictatorship, and, uh, but today is a democracy uh, which respects human rights and which has a, 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 a very healthy economy, I think it makes some difference that, it, that the Americans were, the, the, in a sense, the military power of the region. I suspect if it had been China or, or Russia or, or Japan, it would have been somewhat different. So then what does that mean for the future? Um, during the period when the Americans were uh, the only military superpower was the period when we had uh, responsibility to protect passed by the UN General Assembly. Responsibility to protect was then used for the invasion of Libya uh, or, the, or, or the, the use of military force against <laughs> Libya, not the invasion. Um, that uh, it was not followed up. And the net result is a chaotic situation in Libya today. So I think the, the you know, you can argue that R2P was a product of that maximalist period. And there was a lot of belief that, that we could use, you know, we could use the UN and the Security Council system to protect people who were threatened by their own uh, rulers. And I think there's much less optimism about that now. And uh, there still is obviously a, a strong set of norms on human rights, and the, the Americans still make efforts in this area. but. But the, the view that was, which was common, I don't know, a dozen years ago, years ago, that we were moving toward a replacement of the laws of the charter of the UN, the 45 laws of the charter that was being replaced by a trend in international humanitarian law, which was going to be, you know, very, very different. I think that uh, that optimism or unrealism, if whatever way you want to characterize it, is uh, no longer true today. So uh, we have a question right down here. Um, Maybe that mic, and then we have a question back here. So you can take him back there. Are there hands up there? I just want to make sure. Okay, so then we have, we'll come down here and and take this woman. So we'll go those three on this round, and if we have time, we'll get another round in. Danny. Thank you. Um, Danny Kwa, economics department here. Um, Joe, when you began your lecture, you talked about how the American century arose partly from how the United States had a unique capacity to be the one to provide the global public goods that the world needed in the 1940s. That gave a clarity of vision and purpose to America at that time. In the subsequent several decades, the way your discussion proceeds, you talk about 
you know, negating the worry of absolute decline. You talk about negating the worry of relative decline. You also talk about a greater need for cooperation. Even if, in all the dimensions that you've listed, America remains the world's number one power, does it retain that clarity of vision on how it is the only nation that is able to provide the leadership in doing good for the world? Thank you. We have a question back here. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to ask something about debts. Um, the USA uh, owes China a lot of money, and I would like to ask you, um, when we uh, approach this issue, who has more power um, about each other? Because, I mean, um, the United States would have the power to devaluate the government bonds, or the Chinese would have the power to um, put the to push the government bonds in the markets and this way to influence interest rates and the dollar. And I would like to ask you, um, in this area, who has their more control about each other? Thank you. And, and this right up here will take your question. Yeah. Um, I have a question about there's a theorization now that um, Asia is now actually two different Asias. There's an economic order, which is led by China, and then there is a military order, which is led by the U.S. Just want to know your thoughts on it, and whether you actually see that the two-Asia sort of theory is now diversifying to the West as well, wherein you see um, Britain joining the AIIB and other such events. A lot of ground to cover. There you go. Uh, well, Danny's question is, is, is very important, which is... Uh, even if my analysis is right, that the U.S. will remain ahead in power resources, what will it do with them? Um, because, after all, it was ahead in power resources in the 20s and 30s. But as Charlie Kindleberger always used to say, uh, it didn't live up to the capacity that it had because of its attitudes. So I think that's the area that I would focus on if I were work I mean, whenever you write something, Uh, you always ought to ask after you've finished it, what would make it all wrong? And uh, what would make this all wrong would be if there were a massive change in American attitudes. And then you could say, what would make that possible? Well, you'd, possibly a huge terrorist attack with nuclear weapons. I, I don't know. But the point is that there's always something that can make things wrong that you're, you pinpoint the variable of will the American attitudes and vision live up to it. And it goes back to Peter's initial point, but but I'm taking it that you're looking over a longer uh, period than the current turn of the cycle. And that's something that we have to pay a lot of attention to. On the question of debt, um, it's often said that um, uh, because China has several trillion dollars uh, of reserves, uh, it could bring America to its knees any time it wanted to dump those dollars on world markets. Uh, the answer to that is yes, and it would bring itself to its ankles. Uh, if you look at the interdependence between China and the U.S., uh, there's a lot of symmetry in the interdependence. When Bob Cohen and I wrote Power and Interdependence in the 1970s, uh, we tried to uh, argue that interdependence uh, it, it leads to power when you have asymmetries. If you have uh, symmetries then there's not a lot of power in the interdependence. Uh, China depends as much upon access to the American market 
as the American depends, Americans depend on China not dumping its dollars. This was tested in practice in 2009 when uh, the uh, Americans sold arms to Taiwan, as they had in the past, and a Chinese general said to uh, uh, Bob Gates, who was then Secretary of Defense, um, we have a stronger position on this now because we're strong now and we were weak in the past. And the PLA tried to press China to, in fact, use the, uh, you know, the monetary instrument to punish the U.S. And the Chinese leaders said, not on your life. We're not going to touch this. So I, think that I don't think there's a lot of power uh, because of the symmetry in, in the interdependence. On the, on the question of Asia, it's interesting. There is a um, – um, the Chinese are, the, because of the scale and size of their economy, because of the largest trading partners with so many other countries, the Chinese are extraordinarily important in, in the Asian economy. But um, uh, it's also true that most countries want both a good relation with China for economic reasons and a good relation with the United States for security reasons to protect them against China. So that you have, uh, uh, you have an ironic situation where, where as China uses its economic power to bully other countries, it actually pushes them toward the United States. So, it's, it, so again, there's a, there is the bifurcation or the duality that you describe, but uh, it tends to balance out. Let's say what we're going to try to do here is we're going to take – there's a question up front here. We're going to start there. Then there was a guy in red down here. So we'll go to LSE red down here. And then there was a woman who had a hand up. So you'll be the third on the list. No, no. <laughs> Somebody beat you. Um, this is tough. This is the hardest part of this job. So, um, so if you've got the mic, go ahead. Um, thank you, Professor Nye. Um, I'm from Sri Lanka, and I'm with LSE Ideas. And um, during our course, we discussed a lot about, obviously, China's role. And one point that came up was China's um, sort of non-interference um, approach when dealing with um, many of the nations. We're not, obviously, it's, it's generalizing. We're not talking about um, Japan or Taiwan or Hong Kong. But, um, and America is not really known for that. How will those two opposing approaches to interacting with other nations play out in the next quarter of a century or so? Um, you've spoken about how history isn't linear and the need to have, um, and how unforeseen events can occur. So this is not raise the need for adaptable, flexible institutions and pragmatism in government. One of the like, incredible qualities of the Chinese technocrat leadership is like how the incredible foresight in, in the issues like um, corruption, the demographic challenges, and their implementing policies sort of solve those problems. But then when you look at Washington and the incredible gridlock, one could argue that the challenges there are more than cyclical because of the institutional changes to like voter ID laws, gerrymandering, and like the sort of idealization of a centuries-old constitution by the Republicans to sort of preserve their power in the, in the Congress. We're going to have to bring him into the U.S. Center. Um, so let's see, there was a hand up here. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Hello. Uh, my question is actually a bit related to one which was already asked, but it's on global imbalances and whether um, the fact that 
U.S. is indebted to China, which is now a strategic rival, erodes or enhances its power, because in Bretton Woods it was indebted to its allies, so how that's changed, and also whether this system of imbalance is sustainable. Um, on the Chinese official view is that we don't uh, uh, become involved in the details of what happens inside other societies, and that often makes them popular, uh, particularly in, in dictatorships and other sort of situations. Um, but it also means that sometimes they don't be involved or not involved when they could. So, uh, for example, if you have a human rights violation, the American attitude is often to interfere, and this sometimes drives the uh, authoritarian governments crazy. And the Chinese is, uh, attitude is we don't get involved in such things as human rights, and uh, so sell us the oil anyway. And so if you look at something like the case of Sudan, where there was concern about uh, uh, genocide in Darfur, American oil companies and European oil companies pulled out uh, because of human rights concerns. Chinese uh, oil companies moved in, no questions asked, um, you know, which is preferable. It, but there are differences of the, of the two attitudes. The Americans are meddlesome. The Chinese often are not as meddlesome. And uh, I think what you're going to find over time is the Chinese are going to wind up getting more involved. I think it's impossible not to be. Um, and uh, then they'll have to figure out how they're going to try to balance this. They won't balance it in the sense that weighing human rights the way the Americans do. But for example, if you're building infrastructure in, a, in uh, an African country, the Chinese practice of bringing in Chinese labor um, may be very difficult to sustain. You may have to deal more with local uh, groups. On a, a political, uh, uh, well, let me go to the imbalance, the third question of the imbalance um, in the U.S.-China relation. Uh, as I said, it, right now there's enough symmetry in the interdependence that I don't see a great power advantage from one side or the other uh, in manipulating it. But if it became imbalanced, if the, uh, if the U.S. Uh, became more dependent than China, uh, then I think uh, that China would try to manipulate it. That's normal, or vice versa. I doubt that that imbalance is going to turn that much. In other words, I, I would be surprised if that occurs. Sometimes people say, well, the, the Chinese, as the renminbi, becomes the world's reserve currency, then the dollar will be less useful and powerful, and that'll be the turning point. But to have a reserve currency requires you uh, to have deep and fluid capital markets without political interference so that investors have confidence. And that's not an accurate description of Chinese capital markets. When will it be? I don't know. But when it is, then, then the question you ask may be more relevant than it is now. On the, on the question about uh, political leadership, uh, that's also an interesting uh, question. There, there are two dimensions of it. One is... China, if you go to, to uh, uh, China and you look at the uh, high-speed rail or the new airports and so forth, uh, it's very impressive. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd much rather 
be on the uh, Chinese railroad as I was last December than on the American Amtrak. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, so there's a lot to be said for this, but, but sometimes people neglect the cost to go with it. It's easy to build fancy high-speed rail if you don't have lawyers and property rights. And if you care about uh, local laws and practices and property rights, uh, then, it, then there's another side to that equation, which isn't just caught by a technocratic elite. It's also worth noticing that when you have an accident, as the Chinese had with the Wenzhou rail accident a few years ago, uh, their first inst- in- effort was to cover it up. And uh, because of the modern uh, uh, technology of, of social media, they couldn't cover it up. And then they had to admit that the reason for the accident was massive corruption, uh, it, which was led by the minister in charge, who was subsequently executed. So on this meritocratic, you know, the Chinese have this great Confucian leadership that's far-seeing and so forth. Let's not overdo that. Um, do the Americans have enormous problems of gridlock? Absolutely. We're in a particularly low period or trough in our cycle but it's also worth remembering that American government was created uh, to be inefficient, uh, literally. They were, the founding fathers cared more about liberty than efficiency, and an efficient government could be a threat to liberty. So American government was created in a form so that King George couldn't rule over us and neither could anybody else. And so the kinds of things which we lament today um, – Uh, have long antecedents. I mean, remember I mentioned earlier that the Senate refused to pass the Treaty of Versailles after World War II. Or if you want to go back to the very beginnings, one of George Washington's proudest achievements was the Jay Treaty with England, and uh, it, it was sabotaged by his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, who worked with people in the Congress to make sure it wasn't properly funded. So we've been at this for a long time. It doesn't mean that things are going well now, but it does mean that if you care about uh, protecting liberties, uh, that you buy the American system. If you want a better train system, maybe you buy Chinese. But there's got to be something in between. So I'm I'm mindful of uh, Joe's schedule and uh, his commitments, and I want to make time for the book signing. So I'm going to take one more question, and I think – you know, for the sake of equity, I'm going to go with an older student. So we'll go down here in the front. <laughs> Hold on. Here comes the mic. Thank you. Evocative and, and uplifting to, to hear you, Professor. I used to be a student of yours. I do not know if I got what you said all right, but here I am. Uh, where does uh, Russia fit into the whole mix, into the whole matrix? Uh, sometimes the narrative here is that it is more of a danger than ISIS, and speaking of ISIS and what is happening in the region, if one were to ask the question, is the America century over? America is very, very much in decline in that part of the world, which is a, a real power kick. Thank you. Uh, well, it's nice to see you again. and uh, <laughs> Glad to know you still have tough questions. Um, and as I describe Russia in the book, um, I describe it as a country in decline. Um, And you could say, well, that's good. That means we don't have to worry about it. But quite the contrary. Uh, Countries in decline are often more willing to accept risks, as Austria-Hungary was the only great power that really wanted 
war in, uh, or that accepted a high risk of war in, in 1914. Uh, and I think that's the situation of Russia today, and I think it, it's very worrisome. Um, on the Middle East, I think the, that uh, uh, I think you're right. American influence is lower in the Middle East than in the past, but I don't know whose is higher. In other words, if I think what you see is a diffusion of power in the Middle East as a result of a series of revolutions that are going on at the same time, revolution of the breakdown of the old state borders in the Ottoman uh, inheritance, a revolution of what you might call the arrested development described in the Arab Human Development Report by the UN, uh, a revolution of the intensity of the Sunni-Shia schism, which, was, which has long been there but was exaggerated or accentuated by the American invasion of Iraq. And I think this has produced a situation where you're going to see probably uh, two decades or more of uh, turmoil in the region. And I don't think Americans are going to be able to control it, nor is anybody else. Great, Joe. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been great having you here. It's a great privilege for us to have you here. Um, and you've given us a lot to uh, think about, so thank you very much for that. Um, and with that, please join me in uh, thanking Professor Nye for taking time out of his day.